Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Outdoor Edge in their complete lineup of knives and game processing kits. These guys right now are doing an absolutely huge giveaway where you could win an elk hunt and not just any elk hunt. We're talking about a seven or eight mile horseback ride into the backcountry. We're talking a one-on-one guided hunt. You're going to be sleeping in a wall tent and you're going to be doing that for five days with the founder and CEO of Outdoor Edge, David Block. Now, if you've never been on an elk hunt before, I'm telling you right now, go sign up for this because if you ever hear a elk bugle, whether it's at 400 yards or it's at 40 yards, it is a life-changing experience. So here's how you enter. Go to OutdoorEdge.com. There's going to be a big banner for it somewhere on their homepage. All you have to do is click on that. Go fill out some information. I think your name, your email address, maybe some other stuff. And that's all you have to do. That's how you are entered. They're going to be picking a winner oh, a ways from now. So you have plenty of time to enter. Go visit OutdoorEdge.com. Sign up today. Here we go. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet chasing bear. I always enjoy interviewing the professionals, the people that have dedicated their lives to the subject at hand. The subject today is bears, black bears in Oklahoma. And Sarah Lida is a biologist and she's dedicated the last 20 years of her life to black bears in Oklahoma. 
and she is she she was the first person to actually do research on bears in the early 2000s so sarah is a great guest extremely knowledgeable and she was hard to get on the podcast it was easier to get ted nugent and steve ranella so you're gonna enjoy sarah lida one of my friends and a uh, a great a great conservationist sarah lida the western bear foundation is a non-profit hunting conservation organization standing up for the rights of bears. Yep, you heard it, bears. Conservationists and hunters like us, like the Western Bear Foundation, we love bears. We want them to be on the landscape. We want them to thrive. We want them to be, their numbers to be in balance with the habitat so they can be strong and healthy. There's some people that don't understand that. They don't understand the North American model of wildlife conservation and using hunting as a tool. Our buddies at the Western Bear Foundation, they understand that, and they're standing up for the rights of sportsmen and for bears out west. They're a nonprofit organization. You can join their organization, and you'll get some great perks. Your voice will be in the fight for bears. Check them out. So we just came out with a really cool hat. It's a First Light Fusion camo pattern. Actually, First Light hat. It has a First Light logo on the side. But we put our our famous, now famous, bear grease patch on the front of it. We're selling that hat. We sold so many that we, we sold out what we had in hand. And so now we're taking back orders. Some of the guys that ordered, those hats are on back order. We should have them relatively quick, and we'll be sending them out. But check out that hat. And we just came out with a new mule-riding bear hunter shirt. You're going to want to check that out at bear-hunting.com. Check out all our merch. And also, Bear Hunting Magazine, man. We're the only print bear hunting magazine in the world. We dedicate our lives. Our knuckles literally bleed on the keyboard as we're building this magazine full of tactics, gear, conservation, adventure hunting, how to cook bear, what to do with bear hides, and just the general spirit of goodwill and awesomeness for black bear hunting across North America. Did you know that black bears are the most numerous large carnivore in the world? That's correct. You heard me right. Black bears are thriving. Check out Bear Hunting Magazine. You can get a subscription for $25 a year. You spend that much money at McDonald's. I mean, if you go to McDonald's, you'll spend that much money at McDonald's. Get a subscription to Bear Hunting Magazine. Bear-hunting.com. Sarah Lida, you... You don't realize it, but you're a highly valued guest on the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. We've been we've been trying to get her on here for a long time. True story. <laughs> it's easier times. to get like Ted Nugent on this podcast than Sarah yeah. Lida. It's true. I'm, I'm hard to pin down. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're in uh, we're in southeast Oklahoma, overlooking an incredible view of the Washtenaw Mountains. Yeah, for real, beautiful and. Uh, no, Sarah, thank thank you for meeting with us. We oh. tried to do this a couple other times and ran into some roadblocks, but uh I, I was just telling I was just telling her that these biology podcasts always do good. Mm-hmm. People are always interested 
And I think you were worried that we might be covering some of the same stuff that we talked about with all these other biologists. But I don't care what if we talk about the same things all over again. You may not have heard it. When I have any kind of awkward silence in any conversation with anybody in my life, if I'm at the grocery store, if you're my best friend, if you're my wife, we talk about the Delayed bear. Delayed implantation. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know much about delayed implantation and, and guess, black bears? Guess how cool bears are. <laughs> that's So that's my go-to conversation. But now, Sarah, you are, tell me who you work for. Okay. So I work for Oklahoma State University. Okay. Um, I work through the Oklahoma Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit. And all of the research that we do is for the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation in an effort to aid their management schemes. Now, so. where is, where, is, this is terrible. I did this to you in 2015. I misstated the college that you work for. <laughs> where? Be very cautious. I know, I know. <laughs> it, it's so hard with state lines. Like, I could tell you every college in Arkansas, uh-huh. drive 10 minutes into Oklahoma, and I'm like on a different planet. <laughs> You work for Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State Oklahoma University. Oklahoma State University. Go Cowboys. I was about to say the Cowboys. And <laughs> where are they at? What city? It's in Stillwater. The main campus Stillwater. is in Stillwater. How big is how big is Oklahoma State University? Uh, I believe that they have 24,000 students or no so. No way. That's yeah, a it's, big college. It's a good side school. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize Stillwater was that big. Mm-hmm. It's it's growing. It's definitely growing. Yeah. Quite frankly, it's a wonderful town. I wish Stillwater, though, was about where Poto is so that we could actually get to the mountains more easily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but it's it's a great little town to live in, and it's growing growing yeah. really fast. And, and um, it's a, the land-grant university in the state. So um, okay. campus is, is beautiful, very much focused on outdoor beauty and agricultural sciences and and that kind of thing. Okay. So that's who you that's who you work for. And you are um you're working with research students, graduate students on projects that are always related to bear or not always related to bear. Right for the past well since 2010, I have been strictly bear related. Right. Um I am employed through our grants for the bear research and my job Although it's adjusted over those years, because when I first started back in 2010, I was the only one on the project and was actually doing the field work, right? And and reports and everything else. Um, now, as we've moved forward, as of 2014, we started actually bringing on graduate students and more technicians and that kind of thing. So, so you now, you're overseeing these projects. I oversee all of the field aspects of the bear research in Oklahoma. Okay. And so, so we the, have, I should also mention, so we have Dr. Sue Fairbanks, who is a professor, a tenured professor at OSU, and she is the major advisor for all of the graduate students that we have on the bear project, and she's technically our principal investigator. And so okay. she handles all thing research related in terms mm. of writing the papers and, and managing the students from an academic standpoint. Okay. And then I oversee all of the research efforts from a field standpoint. Okay. Um, maybe you know this answer. Does your funding for your projects come from Pittman Robertson funds? Absolutely. Does it really? It's federal. Yep. Federal. June. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. 
Yeah, we, so we are in where, you know, all of the reports that we send in, they go to the ODWC, but then they also get moved on to um, to the federal's folks so that yeah. they can see what we're doing with that money. Um, can you just like, a lot of people would be familiar with Pittman-Robertson, but like, can you describe that? I mean, I could do it, but I would want to hear you do it. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's an excise tax, right? So it's a the money comes from all the sales of anything sportsman related, hunting and fishing related, and right. um and and so it's it's our hunters, it's our conservationists that are out there that are actually right. paying for the work right, that we're right. doing. So there's that's the federal side of the match money, and then of course the ODWC and the university also have their side right. pitching in right. but if if we didn't have that federal money to fund this we wouldn't we wouldn't have a so that's project. a that is like a big part and and it's become much more common knowledge inside the hunting community in the last probably even 5 years but just this idea that the Pittman Robertson money which is an excise tax which means it's an additional it's an additional tax on guns, ammunition, and hunting-related equipment. So sportsmen choose to, you know, by choose we mean we just hadn't voted it out and made it different. So we've made a choice that this money is going to be given to the federal government, and the federal government ear tags it for these specific things all related to conservation and wildlife. And one of those things, so I've been doing some, I've been doing some study on it for something I'm writing, but, you know, there, there's these very many things that it could go to, but one of them is research. And that's why I wanted to see if this was funded by Pittman-Robertson money. Correct. I was actually last night, just last night in my truck, I had three people with me, none of them from the United States. They were friends of my daughter's from college mm -hmm. um, and uh, have no context for North American hunting, zero and uh, so I took them coon hunting. It's coon season in Arkansas. And uh, that was my go-to thing to early on in the conversation, because they ask, because they know I like to talk about this stuff. And they're like, tell us why honey is important is essentially what they asked almost word for word. Within five minutes, I was talking about the Pittman <laughs> Robertson. I was like, hey, we're funding this. This is a user pay system. And I, I think that's important for people to know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's not just like we like to coon hunt. I mean, we do, but yeah. it's bigger than that. It's there's more right. to it than that, you know. But we're con we're consumptive users, but we're also giving back. I mean, that's yeah. that's the whole point is that, you know, people hunt for various reasons, but it's ninety nine point nine percent, if not a hundred percent of the time, it's because we love the wildlife species that we're hunting right, and that right. we're we're out viewing and watching. And so we want to make sure that they're managed properly so we can continue that heritage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I grew up on a hunting plantation in South Carolina that my dad yeah. was the manager of. Um, he was a forester and a wildlife biologist. And so, I mean, I grew up in the woods, on the water and in the skin and shed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I would, I'd finish my riding lessons. I'd get my homework done and wait for the lights to roll in so I could go sit at the skin and shed and see what came in that night. You know, I mean, um, it's it's a way of life, and and we're extremely fortunate to be able to participate in that. Yeah, and to know that we're giving back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I want to get into your current research. I want to hear some, maybe some cool stories of just. I mean, you've had a lot of hands-on experience with bears, but I want to go back to uh, 
your you were one of the first people doing research on these Oklahoma bears. I am the first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just to, to give a little bit of a context, and people have heard me talk about, you know, the reintroduction of Arkansas quite a bit, but, you know, maybe some people wouldn't be familiar. So, I mean, essentially, bears were here in Ar- or in Oklahoma. This is native range for them. They would have been here almost statewide, I guess. Uh, I guess parts of the panhandle they wouldn't have been, but. Yeah. But well, it, they might have been out in the very western part of the Panhandle because of that New Mexico and Colorado connection. Yeah. Um. But probably, you know, say from I thirty five west, it they probably couldn't have really survived very well. So it would have been right. mostly the forested areas of the state, which would be like the eastern third of Oklahoma, probably about the eastern third. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, just in the last, let's say, fifty, sixty years bears have been come back into Oklahoma. And so this population built and then you showed up and were the first one to do actual research on these bears. Right. So um, I know that uh, Joe Hempel and Jeff Ford had been working for years before we finally got the project started that I got to work on. Um, but in the in the 90s, the late 90s, they they started working to try to get approval for a project because they started having more and more sightings of bears in the southeastern part of the state. And um, as luck would have it, um, a friend of mine from University of Tennessee was out here getting his PhD and they had a student drop out of the project Mm. in early 2001 and they were scrambling to find somebody who had bear experience. And I had worked on a couple of UT projects as an undergraduate at Auburn. And he was calling people he knew that knew how to get out and trap. And so I was fortunately one of those people he called. And mm. long story short, I drove to Oklahoma sight unseen and uh, started in the spring of 2001 mm. down in the Wachita's doing that work. Um, so I, I moved out, I think it was in April and bought all my supplies in Stillwater and came down here and then had to start learning the study area and figure out where we now, wanted to do our trap lines. would that have been lines. for your master's? That was for my master's. Okay. Um, so with the help of the ODWC folks down here, Jeff was, Jeff Ford was yeah. definitely integral in that. Um, but just, So you've known just, Jeff for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. It's, it's, we've got quite a family here. <laughs> our bear, <laughs> yeah. bear people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I had to move down here. I had to learn the area. We had to figure out where we wanted our trap lines to go. Um, and all of that kind of based in what we consider to be the core area of this Wachita population, which is in the national forest in LaFleur right. County. Um, so don't tell them that Sarah. <laughs> 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 no, what's funny is in Oklahoma, there's a, we're talking about the topography and kind of the layout of the state, like the Washtenaw Mountains infiltrate into Oklahoma and just really four or five counties. I mean, like mountainous stuff anyway, like mm-hmm. probably the foothills, the Washtenaws probably go maybe into more counties than that. But it's just a pretty relatively small geographic area that would be considered mountainous. And most people wouldn't think of mountains when they think of Oklahoma. They certainly wouldn't think of what we're looking at here. I mean, this looks like the Appalachians or something. I I can tell you I did not. I mean, I grew up in the low country of South Carolina, and so I always thought Oklahoma was prairie. (laughs) You know, I'm thinking dances with wolves, you know, (laughs) like open prairie. And so um, to know that you could come here and find this kind of habitat. And the other neat thing about these mountains is that they are east to west running. Yeah. And so that we 
we assume that that also kind of aided in the expansion from Arkansas of these right. bears into Oklahoma. Yeah. Obviously, they can climb up and down mountains. They don't have to have it running. But when you've got ridges that run from east ridges. to west yeah. and mm-hmm. the drainages are also doing that, it makes for an easy easy travel corridor, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what were you... Uh, so what was your what were your objectives? I, Colby, I just almost nerded out on the washtals right then. I, I, I felt back. it coming. <laughs> I pulled back just a little bit. I got. I could cue you up, Sarah. Did, so, you you may know much. this, but other people may not. The washtals were some of these mountains were once ten thousand feet, and this may be stuff you had heard. Mm-hmm. Some of these big mountains were ten thousand feet. Mm-hmm. The washtals were formed. The east west running ridges was when South America bumped into North America. It buckled here, and the the Gulf of Mexico used to come up to the Washita Mountains. Like you would have been it would have been a ten thousand foot highest peaks coastal range of mountains. And the erosion of the Washita Mountains, this is the way I understand it. Tell me if you know something different. Those mountains eroded over a bazillion years and basically that erosion filled in what is now western Mississippi, Louisiana, and East Texas. And so they call Louisiana the Washita Basin. So essentially, the 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 erosion of the Washita Mountains, which would have been this massive coastal range, the erosion filled in the Gulf of Mexico. And so when you look on, there's certain, and I, I'm I'm not really a geologist, but there there was a time period when. Yeah, the Gulf of Mexico came up to like right here. We would be standing on mountains looking over the Gulf of Mexico. So are you a runestone believer? Tell, I don't know a ton about it. <laughs> I don't I don't either. All I know is that they believe that the Vikings actually were in the Hevener area at, at one point back when hmm. the ocean okay. was supposed to be that close. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. they have what they believe were Viking runestones um, at that little park there uh, right uh, you know, now, never, i have not I've, been there since grad school so i can't <laughs> i can't give you all the the complete details of it but i've never even stopped there but it, when you said it i mean i remember i mean mm-hmm. hebner's known for the runestones we gotta right. stop there Colby. Mm-hmm. what are we thinking <laughs> uh, yeah no th- it, that fascinates me but the east west running ridges also make for unique habitat for bear because it's these different different angles that sunlight's hitting the forest you know the southern slopes are arid the northern slopes are messic i guess is you know more water more thick vegetation it's it's really an interesting um i i tell people all the time so our our ridges might not be more than three thousand feet right but this is some of the most rugged country you could ever wish for if you really get back in there because you're dealing with really steep areas in most cases too so it's not just that you have these rolling hills that happen to get up tall enough to be mountains um it's they're kind of steep peaks that you're dealing with in particular you can really see it if you say drive along that talamina drive yeah and that's another good area to get to see um the differences in the the habitats that you're talking about too and how how short and scrubby the trees are when you get up on those really high high peaks like that because you're basically almost dealing with a desert type situation yeah. because there's not a lot of um, topsoil for yeah. those for those trees to really take root and um, you know Oklahoma itself has is incredibly diverse from the eco region right. standpoint 
Um, but this, this area down here, um, well, it's, I mean, it's a second home to me. This is just, I, I've never, never lived in mountains before I came here, but this is, this is a good place to be. And it's yeah. been, been great for the bears, obviously. Yeah. So back to where I was going before I got sidetracked by the wash dolls. Um, what were you trying to do with your initial research? What was the objective? So initial, my first research was, was sort of basic in the grand scheme of research these days. But the main goal was to come up with a population estimate okay. for the core area of the population. Um, and then also to move forward with trying to see, we, we did collar back then. They were just VHF collars on females to get a feel for home ranges and habitat use. And then also the important thing about those callers is it allowed us to follow to dens and do the reproductive, um, get the reproductive information that we needed for the population to see if it's in fact growing, that kind of thing. So did you, going into it, did you have, or did anybody have any idea how many bears there were? Uh, I mean, I sh- there was no research, so nobody. But you I mean, know, could they, would, would, did anybody guess right? I'm not sure if anybody did. I would imagine Joe Hempel and Jeff Ford probably had some ideas because yeah. of how long they had worked in this region, and um, and they were the ones that would be dealing with any conflict issues that we might have. Um, I don't recall. Now I've slept. You didn't. I, I've, you I've, didn't I've, think I've slept, how many? I've slept a few few days since then, <laughs> but I don't recall well, coming into it. If anybody said to me, you know, we're kind of thinking this is the amount. Well, see, but, listen, biologists, they're, they're, they don't like to guess, do they? No. But see, normal people, like if you were, if you were, if you were just a normal person and not a biologist and you had an objective to try to understand how many bears there were, yeah. I mean, me and Colby would be like taking bets, you know, yeah. like I bet there's a thousand, I bet there's 5,000, yeah. but you well, ask a biologist and, and they're just like unbiased, like the research will amongst, show the way. Amongst ourselves, we might have our own theories, but we definitely try to be very cautious about throwing yeah. that out in the general public. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, the other thing about it is, I was working in um, a pretty restricted area, and so from my project, we actually only estimated that there are about eighty-five bears really in the area that in I was area. working in. Now, you weren't doing DNA hair snares back then, were you? It was. I helped set that up right after I finished my master's. Right. A student came in and did the, the, the next did, stretch did, with the did hair they snares. have that technology when you started. Because now um, that's like the norm. We the, yeah, the we collected hair, hair from all of our. You know, we collected hair samples off of all of our captures and that kind of thing. The same way right. we do now, um, and so I, I think it was definitely kind of becoming a more common practice. Okay. And so, so how did y'all do it? How did you guys back then like determine density? Um, so for our population estimate, we use the Lincoln Peterson model, and so it's from a capture recapture. Study. Can you, so it was can you break trapping. that down for me in a real simple way? Because I really don't know what it <laughs> capture okay. recap. So it's like so, okay. So we had trap lines. I have ran four different trap lines in different areas, and then they would have. Um, we used Aldrich snares, foot snares, which is a bucket snare. No, this is so. This is before the bucket snares. So okay. these are they are a foothold snare with the same cable that the bucket snares use. Okay. Um, but there, we build them into the ground. So you're making that bear step into a spot where you've got your pan set and, and catch okay. them that way. Gotcha. Still attached to a tree, still with springs 
built in to to protect them from injuries and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, what you're doing when you're doing those is we're marking marking and recapture. That's what the Lincoln Peterson does. So you we capture individuals, we mark them um, with ear tags. We actually use several different methods. We do lip tattoos and ear tags because oftentimes they'll rip those ear tags out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some bears would get collars, of course. And so you're keeping track of all of those individuals, but also recaptures. And all of that information goes into, after two years of doing this work, you put it into this um, into this equation that also takes into consideration, you know, is it a closed system? Are you still having bears moving in or out? Things like okay. that. Lincoln-Peterson is probably like the most basic form of coming up with a with a population estimate these so it, days there cat- are a million different great ways to look into it where mm. um like our our most recent student um Erica Perez that you got to meet um she actually did some modeling for a current estimate down here where she actually incorporated um, not only the, her capture recapture information but also hunting season harvest also um survival and things like that from our callers that we put out. So you can just pile tons of great information in to then get a better feel for what you're Mm -hmm. really dealing with down here. So back then, um, you were, there was some correlation to how many times you caught the same bear. Right. I mean, that's kind of what you're saying. Like like if you caught the same bear four different times, you're, yeah, and you're, you're not thinking, catching a whole bunch new bunch of new bears. Or then, if you never caught the same bear twice, then that, that would mean, mean something, something right? Bigger, that maybe that there are smaller. more bears. Exactly. So if okay. if you're cat recapturing a bunch but not catching a whole lot of new ones, um, then then that would probably go into that and give you a feel for well, maybe there aren't as many bears here. You know, so we've kind of experienced that in certain portions up in our Ozark study area. Right. It's a smaller population that's just becoming established. And so once we trapped for a few years, man, we were just seeing a lot of our, a lot of recaptures and or photos and of all of our 2000. marked bears. That would have been in 2000. That would have been around 2000. So almost, well, 20 years ago. Well, the Ozarks, for the Ozark population, that we started that research in 2011. Okay. Um, but for here, um, and in fact, we believe we've actually started looking at the Ozark population at an earlier place in their recolonization than we did down really? here in the early 2000s. That's interesting. Um, you know, I described a recolonizing population, and we were looking at the expansion front right there in the core area down here in 2001, 2002. And they but were already here. They were already here. But when yeah. we started in 2011 up in that Ozark region, um, we're catching that even earlier. So you're mm. starting to see an increase like you're, you're, you, or, or well, you're, you we feel would like expect to start seeing an increase, an increase up there. In the and, and certainly we're getting right now the up in that Ozark region. And I know we're kind of bouncing back and forth here. So she's doing the typical biologist <laughs> thing. <laughs> but in that we're region, we're asking for the elementary stuff and we're getting like the full scale thesis. <laughs> That's right. So in the Ozarks, um, Right now, that population is basically totally reliant on the influx from the Arkansas okay. side of things. Right. Um, based so they're, on they're not, 
these bears here aren't going north and crossing I-40 and the Arkansas River. And... Not that we've shown yet. Mm. So far, so far, the Ozark and the Wachita populations are distinct populations, right. and there's no flow back and forth. Now, can bears cross interstates and rivers? Absolutely. They don't really like to in yeah. many ways. And so yeah. it seems as though in both populations, they're expanding westward as okay. opposed to north and south. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, now, that's, that's... down here, obviously, because of there, there's so many things that are so different about the Ozarks and the Wachita's here. Um, the Wachita's are wonderful in that there's so much public land, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you've got all of this national forest that's, what, half a million acres or something. And that also yeah. comes from from Arkansas over. And right. so the expanse of good good habitat and not only the national forest, but then you've got also all of the... Um, timber companies and things like that. So yeah. you've got large blocks of forest down right, here. Right. When you're looking at the Ozarks in, o- in Oklahoma, um, it's highly fragmented. So we've got some really good habitat up there. There are it's a just few. Less. Yes. So there's there's the Cooks and Wildlife Management Area that's close to 15,000 acres. Phenomenal bear habitat, but it's surrounded by a bunch of just agricultural owned. cattle pasture. Well, so in Sequoia, Cherokee, and Adair counties, um, there are there are definitely some cattle grazing and yeah, whatnot. Right. But that's those counties. There's a lot more forested area, and okay. it's just broken up because of all the private ownership. Right. Um, and so the good habitat is fragmented more now around that Cooks and Wildlife Management area. There are some good blocks of property owners that have large properties and with them budding up to that wildlife management area man that's that's provided a really good good habitat for bears and that's one of the good areas for them but when you pull out and look at a larger scale it's It's all fragmented and Mm -hmm. it's so it's it's a challenge um you know we've we found in some of our research that the female bears don't don't like that highly fragmented stuff and they don't like to be they don't like to be close to roads and highways, and they don't like to be um, close to human disturbance. So yeah. when you're looking at um, a species that is wholly reliant on females to make it stable and grow, um, it's we're just they're, dealing with different— They're not choosing that fragmented— mm-hmm. Habitat. If they have the choice, they're going to want to be in those large blocks, those large yeah. contiguous blocks. And yeah, so that's yeah. just one of the management challenges that we have in the Ozarks. Com- and, and it's very different from what we're dealing with down here in the Wachita's. Yeah, yeah. Do you not notice that as much with male bears? They just kind of roam a little bit more freely? Or? Yeah, they, they just cover all kinds of territory. Yeah. And they're studying these are, females I mean, watching where they den. That's, yeah. You probably have more data on the females. We've yeah. got so, – so we are definitely um, – We've got way more collar data, mm-hmm. location data on females than we do on males in the state. Now, we were initially collaring males as well up in the northeast. And actually, we still are um, in the in the Ozark region. In fact, we're doing some really cool stuff now where we're actually collaring yearling bears to track their dispersal from the maternal home range. Oh. Don't get too far ahead of me. I've, um, I've still got questions about your original <laughs> thesis, Sarah. There's just too so, much good stuff. I do too. Yeah, she's, we gave okay. her an open door and she just took it. She took okay. it and ran. This, so the original research. Well, let me, though, let me, let okay. me, there's two what questions question? I want to ask you. Okay. Um, how many bears did you find out that there were? So in two summers, we actually captured 51 individuals on my original trap lines. In, in 2000, so 20 years ago. 2001, 20 2002. Years ago. 20 years ago, 
51 I mean, bears. I haven't gotten any older, but, you know, that was <laughs> 20 years ago. Um, so, so we captured 51 individuals. Our population estimate for the study area, and that's that's a big thing to, to key in on, is the fact that right. we're not saying the, whole the state entire of Wachita's have right. only 85 bears at that point. We were saying this study area that encompassed the home ranges of the females that I was collaring and the trap lines that I worked on um, was 85 or so bears. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, would that have been like like one, like you don't have to give the specifics of it, like would that have been about the size of one of these counties over here? It seems like, if I'm remembering correctly, it seems like uh, the study area was defined as about 1,400 square kilometers or something like that. Mm. Um, Can you put that in American? Mm, well, so check out real. Science Made Simple, metric conversions. She does it too. So that's probably what, like, square miles wise, that'd be what, maybe Half. like six or 700 square miles. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, some, yeah. I, I think something like So probably like, like, that. Like, a, like, a, like a county. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, uh, I'm just thinking of average. County and and it wasn't. I mean, as far as Lafleur County is concerned, it was only a small portion of Lafleur County. And okay, I, and so I it was never, bigger. It was bigger than it's, that. It's 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 smaller than than Lafleur County. Oh, you know? oh, got you it. Know, got my it. my study area was smaller than mm-hmm. Lafleur County Understood. for sure because it was just in a small portion of the national forest in Lafleur County. Okay, so, we're going now. We're, so, what's the most one wait, bear has no, been no, recaptured? You hold it. You hold it. <laughs> This, your question really is going to throw off the whole. You hold okay, it. Okay, I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll hold it. Here's my question. Holding what it. was it like catching your first bear? So Ooh. you you uh, you had never you you didn't know this country. You, I presume you'd never seen an Oklahoma bear before, and you go out and you set these traps, and you catch a bear. I mean, that had to have been like an impacting thing to be like, holy smokes, this mm-hmm. is a bear. Um, Do you remember that? I, what I can tell you is that there is no feeling that's better in this world than to have the opportunity to to start a project like that from the ground up. Mm-hmm. So to be the one responsible to actually get in there, do the footwork, figure out where you think the best places for your lines are going to be, set those lines, train people that come out to work with you, set those lines. Yeah. And then and then begin capturing like we did. Um, it's phenomenal. And, and yeah, it's still it's a satisfying and then, thing. And not to keep jumping back and forth, but so I did that work in 2001 and 2002. And then when we got the new funding for the current projects started in 2014, I was then able to take Morgan Fander, a master's student, into those areas and we started using those lines again Mm. to see how things had changed and talk about full circle. I mean, it just, I can get emotional about it and get weepy anytime (laughs) thinking about how, how incredible it was to, to have been a part of that original research. Kind of pioneered Mm -hmm. that research. And then to be able to share it with other students and see how much farther they can take it now than I ever could have back Mm -hmm. then. You know I mean? The, the technology and that we have now and the intelligence of these students and the, the things that they bring to the project. It's just been, it's been and, a lot and, of fun. In a 20 year time period, probably a lot of great stuff has happened. I mean, in terms oh, of gracious for sure of, of research, of ability to interpret data and research and stuff. I mean, pretty big leaps and different things, Absolutely. but you still didn't answer my question, Sarah. 
Um, <laughs> when you walked up on the first bear, oh. was that exciting? Oh, I'm absolutely. Just, I'm just messing with you. Yeah. Do, do mean, you remember the first I, one? That's I what don't, I was Well, so I will tell you, I don't remember now specifically the first okay, one. Okay, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you but, answer my questions. You but I do... Do you want me to tell you about our girl that I think Jeff actually mentioned in his podcast? Yeah, um, sure. So hold your question, Colby. She was only I've got the, more now. I think she was the third bear that we ever caught on my project mm. in two thousand one. Mm-hmm. We and we name our bears because I don't like tracking numbers. So Bertha. <laughs> yeah. Bertha is our was girl. She big? Um no, I don't okay. think she was especially big. She was only a three, about three years old. Yeah. Then I always associate big with Bertha. It's like, well, oh, big Bertha. now Bertha <laughs> is big in terms of attitude and personality. Oh, okay. So there Bertha definitely, and now she, as an adult bear, she is a good sized bear. Okay. But, um, so we caught Bertha. She was, I think, only the third bear that I ever caught down mm. here starting that project. And Bertha showed back up in our project when we started trapping in 2014 down here. Exciting. And we still have Bertha Collard. She's still alive. She's still alive. She's not had cubs the last two years, which mm-hmm. makes this very sad. But she's still in incredible condition so and she, still alive. So you think she's 23 years old? hmm Wow. So you caught her that first year, and she's still alive. It's yes. Amazing. And I would have never, idea? when we started back in 2014, of course I had all the old numbers and data that I I passed actually I don't even think I'd passed it off to the grad student then to to Morgan because it just didn't even occur to me that we'd start seeing these bears and luckily the tattoos lasted long enough that we ended up I think with six or eight different bears that I marked in my study that showed up again Uh, in our studies here that's pretty neat Mm -hmm. that's very neat but Bertha is if I was going to have a favorite bear she is definitely the favorite (laughs) so she she stands out what's the oldest bear that you guys know of in Oklahoma I think she's it Uh, best we can tell she's around I'm pretty sure in Arkansas the that's around the age of the most the oldest documented bear Mm -hmm. uh I've heard Randy Cross up in Maine talk about 30-plus-year-old bears. I've seen some of his stuff that he's written. Um, anyway, but, yeah, that's that's old. That's and pretty it's, cool. It's tricky. You've got to have, you know, what we found out, the the aging with the tooth, the cementum annuli, is, is really good. Um, but we've also found having marked her back in 2001, and as a younger bear, you can – it's more trustworthy, that process yeah. is – so we knew she was likely three or four at that point. Yeah. Um, so then when they actually aged the this, this second time around in 2014, it didn't peg her as old as she really was. Mm. But, That's interesting. That is but interesting. I, I don't know. I don't know if we have. She's probably running out of teeth to age. <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, they wear them down. I mean, mm-hmm. they spend half of their lives eating acorns. Yeah. And walnuts yeah. and things like that. So it's going to wear them down. Yeah, yeah. And um, and the one that we use is such a tiny little premolar. Mm-hmm. Could you use other ones? Um, That's just the easiest one to get to? That Well, it's the, it's it's the, the one least... that they're not using. Right. It's, always, it's, it's, it's the most so obscure tiny. tooth they own. It's, it's a tiny one right behind that canine. Right. And they're actual, I guess they're... They technically have four because you can technically take one from the bottom. The top is yeah, where yeah. we usually pull from because that's usually the easiest to pop loose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's not even 
it's not even a quarter of an inch root and all once mm. we get it yeah, yeah. out of the out of the mouth. And so that's the reason we use those because okay. it's not going to inhibit their Always their wondered foraging. why they use that one, but mm -hmm. that makes I mean, I presumed that was why. It's, it's, it's just... virtually vestigial, basically. You know, it's what virtually that? something that they're not using anymore. Okay. It's okay. still, that's like our appendix, basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, still yeah. there. Um, maybe it served a purpose or still could help a little bit, but it's so tiny that it's pretty much in. But you could annulize any tooth, I guess. I, that's a good question, but I believe so. Okay. I mean, mm. they're, they're all growing from the time that they yeah. lose them as babies and get their adult teeth and yeah. they're going to. Yeah. You know, uh, Randy Cross told me one time that, um, you're talking about tooth aging animals. He said, he basically said you can't put much stock in tooth wear, just visible tooth wear. I wondered if you had any correlation with this. Like, cause he said we might, he said they might be working with a five-year-old bear that has like rotten teeth and has broken canines and busted up. And then they might have a 15-year-old bear that has a fairly pristine set of teeth. Because, you know, the, the generalization would be, oh, that bear's old. Its teeth are wore down and broken. I mean, probably most of the time that's true. But he said there were notable exceptions that made him not give much credit to just tooth wear. And I'm not talking about annuli, cementum annuli. I'm no, just talking about sure. visible yeah, tooth wear. For sure. And he, he thought it was genetics. He thought it was just like humans, just mm -hmm. like some people are prone to more tooth decay than others. Mm. Anyway, I, I just thought that was interesting. I could definitely see that. I mean, I, I guess that's with most wildlife species. It's like we've got this great um, formula for aging deer, but it depends on the region that you're right. in. and How many rocks they're chewing. Oh, uh, yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. So, so it's the same idea with bears. We always, I mean, we're biologists, so we've got a data sheet that's just chock full of stuff that we write down and we make notes about what their tooth wear looks like and if there's right. um, anything odd to report. Um, and so I think, I think it gives us some, something to go by just if we're accustomed to seeing bears in the Wachita's and what their teeth usually look like, it has some bit of a spectrum for us that, you know, we can right. say, well, most likely it's within this range or something. Um, but absolutely, I mean, there's genetics, there's what that particular bear eats a lot of. Maybe it um, did something different than... A bear thirty miles away, right? Had a right. different diet, and uh, like Colby, I said, what's I mean, your question? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was say, like I said, I mean, they when they're sitting there spending so much time crunching on acorns and walnuts and things like that, you just just never know. Do you remember how long it took you to catch your first bear? Oh, from when you started. I do not remember specifically, but it seems as though within the first week. Whoa, she's a good trapper. Because we trapper. only. Um, I mean, we only run each line for a couple of weeks apiece. Mm -hmm. And so at that time, we would we would work for two weeks running those lines, and then we'd take a couple of days off to just do telemetry or whatever, mm -hmm. and then we'd set the next line. Yeah. Sounds, um, sounds like a fun research project to start up. It, it really was. And, and, if you love the outdoors. And such a beautiful place, mm -hmm. you know. Um, of course, I think it was that very first line that also gave all of us a huge – Huge case of poison ivy oh. because the absolutely perfect trap tree that I found was covered, but I wasn't willing <laughs> to give it up. So we ripped out a bunch of poison ivy and consequently all ended up in Fort Smith at the doctor. Oh, no. <laughs> Getting oh, no. shots. I've had that shot before. <laughs> because no we fun. were so miserable. <laughs> but mm. we caught bears there. Yeah. 
In fact, the first bear we caught there, we named Ivy because of Ivy. <laughs> Ivy darn. That's a good What's name. What's the funniest name you've given a bear? Oh, hmm. It's interesting. It's a good question. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if we have. Oh, I do know one. Um, so I've heard you talk with somebody about how to pronounce the Wachita's and how so many people <laughs> yeah. mispronounce it. And back then we used to laugh because people would say Wachita's. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So we called one of our bears Wachita. Nice. Oh, that's just like a stab <laughs> in the back. <laughs> so, so, and then of course it's spelled exactly well, like Wachita, hey, but you the, had to call her Wachita, not <laughs> Wachita. That's funny. That's good. That's good. I like that. The, no, I, I've got a bear naming story that involves okay. Sarah. Okay. And it ties right in. This is a beautiful segue into den research. Mm-hmm. So the one time I went with you guys on a den research project mm-hmm. or a den a den visit, mm-hmm. well, I think it was 2015. I think it was 20, I think it was five years ago. May it may have been 2016. It would have been 2016, I think, because okay. that's when Erica and Morgan were with us. Okay, um, 2016. Erica Perez and Morgan. Fandom. So four years ago. And uh, so we were we were going into a, a sow that you've done so many. I don't know if you know if, if if you even remember it, but we were going into a sow that didn't have cubs. Yeah, we That's didn't. We, we didn't. Thought. Th- we didn't think she, we thought she was too young to have cubs. Yeah, and so we walk all the way back in there, and the whole time it's like, and the good, the cool thing about it was, if it had cubs, I probably wouldn't have even been on the trip. Part of the reason I got to go was they were like, <laughs> "Hey, this isn't that important. You're not that important." <laughs> So you can come with us on this one. Mm-hmm. You, and gotta, so, you, you have to pay your dues. You yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, and I was, I was grateful just to be there. And so we went up, and uh, I mean, it's a pretty cool process to like watch, watch you guys work in that scenario because you know pretty much where the bear's at, and probably in this case, they, I think Morgan knew exactly where it was at. They, they had already gone in and located the den in this rock cavity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you have to kind of sneak up, kind of be quiet. And But these bears are unusually sedate, you know, just naturally in the den. Like, that's what's not – people either think they're dead asleep and you could just walk up to them and poke them with a stick and they wouldn't even wake up. Or when you tell them that they're, like, cognizant and, like, they're like looking at you out of the den with their head up. Like, you know, you're like, well, why aren't they running off? So anyway, you, you sneak up to this den and kind of move in quiet. And then I think Morgan darted the bear, I think with an air gun. It may have been a jab stick. We usually remember. use a jab stick, but okay, she, back, I, I, I think I stayed back and let you guys go up there, but usually we use a jab stick. Yeah, she used a jab stick. I remember putting it together now. So she has this like spear with a syringe on the end of it, mm-hmm. poke poke mm-hmm. this bear, and uh, the bear just lets you do that. And um, some, but, of them, some of them do. Yeah. <laughs> but what was cool about this one is that there were cubs. Mm-hmm. So once we get up there, Morgan's like, there's cubs in there. <laughs> and there wasn't supposed to be cubs. And this was uh, like a, uh, I guess a bear going into its third, was it like a two and a half year old? But we, well, it would have been in the, it would have been in the spring. So it would have been a three year old. She would have turned three already. Yep. So that's pretty young for a bear. So to that be. meant that she bred at two and then right. had her first litter at three. And we've had that happen in the Ozarks in particular. We've had that happen before. Right. Um, but it's it's not incredibly common. They usually mm-hmm. say between three and five is when they they first 
yeah. first breed. I want I want to come back to that very point, but I got to finish the story. Mm-hmm. While Morgan and I were, yeah, y'all stayed back just a little bit, just so it'd be we less just sent ruckus. You and Erica and Morgan up, I think, so that we only have a few people that go in on the sedation team. Mm-hmm. And right at like the peak moment of intensity, like we see the den, the den's like right there. Morgan goes, there's a camera. There was a like 1970s style full frame 35 millimeter Canon camera laid on a rock as if Rumpelstiltskin in 1979 had laid that camera there and it had been untouched for it was old. Mm-hmm. This camera's just laying there. And she says, there's a camera. And we're in the middle of nowhere. Do you remember that? Oh, I do. And, and I hope she still has that camera. <laughs> <laughs> I heard Jeff Ford has it. Oh, he might, yeah. Uh, it, and and so we're, we got to do the job. So we're like, take note, like, okay, there's a camera. We got to come back and see what's up with this. Anyway, we go in and do all the den work. And then I think after we got her sedated, somebody walked over there. And, you know, Morgan saw it, so it was, you know, it was, it was, mm-hmm. it was hers, you know. And, uh, it, we, it was crazy cool. And we named that cub Cannon because it was a Cannon camera. Mm-hmm. And one of the cubs was Color Phase. They were and tiny. They were tiny. And, uh, a Color Phase, I remember one of them looked almost silver. And mm-hmm. that's the one we named Cannon. But, uh, anyway, it was just, I've never had that happen in, in, in all my outdoor adventures to find something quite that unique. And as I, I, I followed up with Morgan later and she wasn't able to like the, the film was like unsalvageable, mm-hmm. but she tried to get it open. And, but anyway, it was kind of neat, mm-hmm. but yeah. You never know what you're going to find out in these woods. You know, it's, yeah. it's, I'm always hauling treasures in, but usually it's rocks and feathers and things like that. But yeah. Um, well, I'd like to know the story of the person that lost that. Um, okay, the the uh, breeding age of these bears being two and three, like what does it indicate when there's young females getting bred? So uh, what we suspect, like, like I said, it's usually that we've seen it the most up in our Ozark region, although we have seen it down here in the Wachita's a little bit. Um, but in that particular case, you would expect that there are fewer females, and so those younger ones can actually become bred at an earlier age so that the males are actually covering younger females. Right, right. Um, and, and there's a lot that goes into it as well in terms of interpreting. You know, a lot of times those younger females have a harder time actually raising off that first litter because th- there's got to be some learning curve, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, if they're still only only just now turning three years old and have only spent, you know, six months or nine months on their own, then them having to also teach cubs is, is a challenge for them. Right. Um, some do a great job and some, some don't. Um, but, but yeah, it's been an interesting thing to see now down here in the Wachita's, I believe that, um, most of the time their first breeding is around three. And this is a more stable population though. Correct. There, there, kind of there are more bears population. here. It's, it's still growing, but it's still kind of a more stable, and there are more bears um, and more adult females t- 
to choose from. Now, not that the male bears are at all choosy. Yeah. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're just covering as many as they possibly can. Um, but there's just that, that competition. What's the, uh, what's the coolest like home range bear story that you can recall? So you've done, you, you've been around some of these research projects with like bears and I, I'm sure you've heard about this bear that's come down from uh, like Wisconsin is now in Eastern Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Have you heard about that? Um, briefly. I don't know a whole lot about it, yeah. it, but that's all I know is what I just told you. Right. But they've been tracking this bear down through the Midwest and he's ended up in like the lower white river drainage in Arkansas from Minnesota, not Minnesota, Wisconsin, I think. Mm-hmm. But well, um, so, so one thing that I should mention about collars that, um, is is really important to bring up about because it, our research is we learn so much more now these days being able to have access to the technology we have. So when I was in graduate school, um, I referred to only having a VHF collar, which means it only has a radio signal and you have to get out there and manually track that collar right. and triangulate. You have to have really good mapping skills. <laughs> and, you know, so you're out there having to do the work to get any location. So you can imagine because of the time that it takes to actually get enough readings on a certain bear and get a location on it that your your hands are tied to where you probably got maybe I got three locations per bear per week. Something mm. like that when I had fifteen big collars out or so. Yeah. Um and that's tracking six days a week. You know, so um there's a lot of effort that goes into getting just a handful of locations and data. Now we're using satellite callers. And so we can have those callers. I mean, they can be programmed to take locations every 30 minutes if we wanted to, but most of ours take them. um, Now on our yearling bears, we're taking them every few hours. On our adult bears, we're taking them every six or seven hours um, so that you're getting locations at different times a day. Now, we aren't getting those locations every single time it makes an attempt. But mm. you can see that if I'm supposed to be getting three locations per day and only get two, that's still what, years ahead of where you were. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so what we thought was happening back then based on VHF work, now we're really getting to see a lot of movement that we wouldn't have gotten before. Um, so... So we've had we've had one female in our Ozark region that primarily was in an area, let's say, eight miles by eight miles. That was her home range for the most part. In that, I appreciate you putting work, that in miles rather than kilometers. <laughs> working around in that area, that's where she lived. But every fall, for about a week or two, she would make this jaunt into Arkansas, which was probably where she was going was probably as a crow flies 30 miles away or so Mm. and she'd go over there and then she'd come back in den back Mm. in oklahoma again in the fall Mm -hmm. Mm. and and so we never were able actually we should pull that data up and maybe we could get over there now that we've been to see what we've been working with yeah of course it's it's been so long now yeah yeah um i mean you could say well maybe there's a feeder over there that she's going to a wildlife feeder or something but she was surrounded by plenty of wildlife feeders in her home range Mm. um she was in an area that had plenty of good oaks you know so but there was something over there that she would take this jaunt and then come back um, do you think it could have been like where she was 
raised or where she came from? It very I mean, well, a maternal home range or something, maybe, yeah. you know, certainly that's close enough that, that, you know, she could have potentially come from that area. Yeah. Um, for sure. But why she wouldn't have set up shop more in Arkansas than, right. you know, because they don't usually, they don't typically disperse that far from the maternal home ranges. The females don't. Would you say it's pretty, um, uh, standard, like, well, I don't want to get ahead of you on the other interesting stories but like give me a generalization on bear home range here like okay size so they're they're pretty large here um what we're probably looking at is around and around 38 square miles or so for females really and 170 or so square miles for males wow, they're really or, or bigger i mean we actually down here i believe they there's an estimate that was even close to like 250 square miles is that so laura conley in in missouri told me something similar and that surprised me because it may be 20 maybe 10 even 10 years ago some of the research that was being at least in general terms, what I was hearing in Arkansas, the bear range wasn't that big. And I don't know if that, you know, sometimes one person says something as a generalization and then you hear that and then you start repeating it. And before you know it, it's science when really it never was. So, but that's really a big home range. There's a lot of variation. I mean, that is definitely something to keep in mind is that, um, between individual bears and their area within the population, um, it, it, you know, their home range size is wholly tied to the resources that they need to survive on an annual basis. So that's what they and need so to if, survive? Well, it's just, it, it, it can be in a very small area. It could be three square miles if they could find all of their annual food food stuff right. in, within that three square miles. If they can find their water, they've got good denning all of that, it can be very small, um, but they need to, to be able to, I mean, these are very large animals in general that live off of nuts and berries, basically. And yeah. so you can so imagine big areas. how many, yeah, how much they have to forage to get enough blackberries for a day or, or acorns for a day, that kind of thing. So it's, it's really a function of, of the habitat and how much area they have to cover in general. Now, males, it also has to do with them traveling Breeding. to breed. Yeah. The females aren't going to take off. And, and they're now they're, their the summer home ranges are larger than the fall, usually. The fall usually kind of um, gets a little more compact. Um, so the female home ranges in the summer are bigger than the fall. Males are obviously way bigger in the summer than they are in the fall right. because summer is the breeding season. And so yeah. they really put the pedal to the metal and are out, out hoofing That's a it. massive, a massive area. You know, I wonder if sometimes I've thought about like a, kind of like an anomaly, like what you just described, like this sow that just had this home range and she just went over and did something crazy and then would come back. I wonder if uh, adaptation and evolution have some way rewarded kind of just something that seems erratic, but there was a biological advantage to, like, if you think about it like this, like maybe something catastrophic would happen in a certain area and the bear that wasn't there when it happened 
survived. Right. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sure. So, like, because you see these, like, we kind of want to take wildlife and make them into this, like, cardboard cutout. I do, anyway. I know you're a biologist, so you don't, but I do. <laughs> and so it's like, a bear has, he's in this home range, he's going to stay here, but then you hear this stuff. And and I, I'm, you know, Jeff Ford told us a story about this bear that went, like, 70 miles Rambler. one way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we called him Rambler after that. <laughs> and, you know, and so my... You know, you think, well, a home range is a is a reflection of what that bear needs to survive and nothing more. Like, that's what you, that's what I think. Or, you know, that's what I want to think. what you want to think, right? Like, so, but Rambler, he bypassed a ton of great habitat, probably full of food source, to go over there for whatever. This mm-hmm. bear did, your bear did the same thing. So, like, I just wonder if there's, like, something rewarded inside of random, you know, eccentricity inside of a bear or, or any 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 animal species maybe well and to us it's it appears to be erratic right. but there's there's a reason that they're making those moves yeah and it's just like um you know we've we've worked to try to get at why they choose different den types right why when you've got say crevices and you've got hollow trees and you've got good brush piles why would they ever just go den in a ground nest you know why why would they do that it seems ridiculous to us but somehow it's working for them and they've made those choices and so we just have to do the best we can at looking at all the variables to try to flesh out why they're making these moves and these decisions that they're making um and maybe it is random you know maybe maybe we try to put too much into it but i like to think i mean sort of supporting your your theory i mean i like to think that there's there's a reason for their movements. We just haven't seen it yet. We just yeah. haven't quite flushed it out. Yeah, it's such a mystery. That That is the one thing that is so cool about these animals, especially when we have this kind of research and data like we have now, like these GPS collars, is you get to unveil just a little bit of the mystery to see what they're doing. Right. Do you have any other cool home range stories? I kind of interrupted you. Um, well, I was going to mention Rambler and his movements. Um, actually, uh, Courtney... Daughter, which our PhD student down in the Wachita's just sent me a map the other day of our girl Bertha that I was just talking the about. The old one. And so she is within our original core area here and um, and has been, has been really consistent over the years. I mean, we literally were catching her like at the same trap sites <laughs> that we did wow. from back in the early 2000s. And, um, but she took a jaunt south that looks appears to be new this summer compared Mm. to what she's done before and now again i will say that she has not had cubs the last couple of years Mm. and so maybe her movements might be a little bit different now that she's older and potentially not having cubs um we're still holding out hope for this next year Mm. um but she just took a jaunt south and i'm trying to think it's a good 10 or 12 miles from kind of her normal area Mm. um we speculate empty, empty nest syndrome. We speculated <laughs> that maybe she was making her way down to the to the little cafe to get a burger and fries and a milkshake or something <laughs> yeah, since she yeah. didn't have to deal with kids. But exactly, you know. <laughs> yeah, empty nest, empty nest. Yeah. Um, dens. Is there? Is there? Where do they primarily den? Um. So. Oh gosh, they use so many different types of dens. I already kind of spouted off a few of them. It's it seems to be a little bit different between the Wachita's and the Ozarks, but that is only because 
the availability of crevice type or cave type dens in the more, Ozarks. They're more they're more the available yeah. up in the Ozarks because of the geology in that it's area. Really ledgy and um, stuff up there. So we get a lot, you know, we definitely get more of them in those types of dens there. Um, but primarily we see a lot of ground excavations. So in the side of a hill, they literally will dig out a spot big enough for them to curl up in. Um, down here, we get a lot more in like the hollow bases of trees, hmm. um, sometimes in elevated, what I would call elevated tree dens, where they actually have to go into a hole up 20 or 30 feet up and really? then down We've into the We've got some trees so, that big around here that have those kind of cavities. We do, and, and, and it's kind of crazy because they actually don't have to be as big as you would envision them. I mean, basically, like mama bears in there sitting here, <laughs> and that's about as much space as she's probably got. Huh. You can't um, hardly get to those bears, though, for... We have not... All we have done is actually... We've done GoPro. We, we track them, and then if we can, if we can climb the tree, if we can get up there, we try to shoot a GoPro in there and see what see what see we what's can, going on. Yeah, if, if that just to say, okay, does she have cubs or not? If we can't climb it, um, we also leave game cameras up there so that we can see, try to see who comes out. Yeah, just so we yeah. know if, if she ends up having cubs or not. Usually those dens like that are going to be a female that's going to have cubs, not one that has yearlings. Right. Space smaller, issue. Smaller mm -hmm. den. Right. Yeah. Um, so lots of ground excavations. We've got the crevice dens up in the Ozarks, um, what I call just kind of rock dens, so just spaces under the big boulders. Right. Now um, that would be here. That we was see like those that more here. female that I was with y'all. Right. It was just like a rock pile. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't have looked at it and thought, oh, that's a bear den. It was just a, just a space. I mean, right. probably 12, 14 inches tall and you know, kind of obscure shaped, but maybe two or three feet wide. I mean, just mm -hmm. enough for somebody to just kind of mm -hmm. get half their body down in there. I, I, I was always real interested and still am. The more, the more bear de dens that I've seen, the more interested I am in them. But people don't, people, most people don't understand what they, these look like. No, very you, and rare. you probably, if you're in the woods in the winter time, very much at all in a place that has bears, you've probably walked past bear dens and never, and never, never had a clue. It. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's, it's unbelievable the spaces that they, they choose. Um, actually one of our coolest crevice dens that we have recorded so far was actually down here in the Wachita's and she was so far, I mean, it was a tight squeeze. You had to be comfortable with spelunking to get into mm -hmm. her. And we actually ended up, because of the angle and where she was, we tried to dart her because she was so far back in there. But the angle, the darts kept kind of glancing off of, <laughs> of rock and whatnot. We ended up putting two jab sticks together. So like a 16-foot long <laughs> jab stick mm. and feeding it like... Talk about teamwork. Um, <laughs> it was phenomenal. We, we made it work and were able to sedate her. Mm. And um, and then get down in there, and uh, those are. Uh, what what? It, there's not many caves like that here. Was it a cave? Would you call it a cave? I I mean I was would technically no. It was it was technically a cave or a crevice. Was it like a crack I, I and a big kind of bluff? It was in so it's in the side of a hill, and um. And it's almost like a fissure, you know, where oh, okay. it is like maybe maybe that's what was going on is that, you know, to get down into it, um, basically like you're squeezing yourself like you just have to slide down in and then it kind of opens up and moves around. Um, wow. But she was down and like I said, it was our jab pole was 16 feet when all was said and done and we were hanging down into it. The Our graduate student, Will 
um, Childress was actually kind of hanging, laying down into the entrance using that jab stick. So, um, I mean, she was down in there a good ways. Mm. And we've had some of, we've had some really neat ones up in the Ozarks that are similar where you, you're like having to crawl into a tunnel to be able to even do the sedation and that kind of thing. Um, but typically it seems as though they're going to have smaller dens when they have cubs. Um, and then when they're back in there with yearlings, then they usually pick a little bit larger spaces. They have bigger space. But that's, I mean, that's not written in stone. Nothing out here is, but yeah. it, it, that's usually what have we Have you see. ever had any real close calls with bears? Like one, like getting ugly with you? Um, some of the girls get pretty saucy with us in the, in the den season. <laughs> <laughs> they, they take exception, you know, what you were saying about how calm they are. And that's, I'd say 85, 90% of the time. Right. They... They look at you, they know you're there, they might huff a little bit, and then mostly they turn away from you and say, well, I'll just pretend like you're not there and maybe you'll go away. You right. know, they they really just, they don't want to mess with you. Yes, they can come out. They could get you if they wanted to, but mostly they just want you to go away. Um, but we definitely have certain ones that have been, I mean, they swat and bite at the jab stick. And we primarily use the, the aluminum jab pole, and okay. that can go anywhere from... Um, I think they're like three foot sections or so, two and a half or three foot sections. So we can get it up to about eight or nine feet if we need to. Um, we prefer that method to, we do have fancy dart projectors and things like that when we need to, but a lot of our areas, it's so thick, um, getting into them that you have to get just about as close with the dart projector as you do with your jab stick anyway. So we have so much more control over, the placement of our, you know, of our syringe and things like with that a, with, with, with jab the jab stick, stick yeah. than we do. I mean, the there, as I mentioned with the dart projector, I mean, you just have all kinds of weird things that happen depending yeah. on angles and things like that. Yeah. And so even, even an excellent marksman, um, can still, still mess up with that. Yeah. Um, so you've never been attacked by a bear. I have never been attacked by a bear. I've had a bear that wanted to eat me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're asking that. about memorable bears, and I think everybody that's worked with them has has a story probably about certain ones, and this is one that was down. It was on my second trap line um, of the summer in grad school, and he was a probably a three-year-old male, and those guys tend to think that they're pretty tough stuff and want, yeah. ha- they have something to they're prove. They're the troublemakers. They're the right ones there. that think they have something to prove. You know, the big older males, like our boy Skip, that's over 500 pounds, he just sits there and looks at you like, I know I'm the king of the forest. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. no big deal. You don't scare me. <laughs> but when you have those young males, they're the ones that kind of get pretty feisty sometimes. <laughs> but he was, thank goodness we had a good, a good catch on him because he was lunging back and forth between my technician and myself like coming after us and he Mm. was really rangy had long legs and so he had a really good good reach on him and I was doing the jab and I mean he'd rush right at me and slap at the jab stick and then he'd turn around and he'd do the same thing with my technician who had a stick trying to keep his attention and that kind of thing and so of I mentioned that we had 51 bears individual bears captured those two years and of those 51 he's the one that i would not want to have bumped into in a berry patch you know i feel like i feel like you know they all have a certain amount of fight in them when they're they're backed into a corner certainly but 
his behavior was totally different. Yeah, he was um, pretty aggressive. And then we've got a female um, up in the Ozark region that um, her name, actually her name is Christy. <laughs> but she is sorry she is, for all the Christies out there. She is no angel. <laughs> and and the cool thing about her was that we um the last time that we worked a den with her, um she had a male and a female cub, which is typical. And um the little female cub was just as saucy as Christy is. <laughs> like usually, you know, they're just they just want to cur- curl up and go to sleep or whatever. But that little girl, what it was a little bit later in March, and so she was older and a little bit bigger, and she already had the like pat the ground with her front feet and huff at you. <laughs> and I mean, she had all of the big bear stuff down, you know and what? the little male just laid and slept in your arms. But she <laughs> was not. She was she was biting us for like when we were <laughs> trying to take measurements. You and know, stuff. we like, did. We did a, I did a, I did a story and I interviewed Randy Cross specifically about an idea that he had. And I don't know if you're familiar with Randy Cross, but he's a, he's a, uh, the, the bear biologist or was, he's retired now, but a reputable bear biologist in Maine. Yeah. He, so we did a story on, uh, and this, and he contacted me. Well, no, I didn't. I contacted him, but he had this bear named Sarah that they had had for like, uh, 20 they they had a she lived to be no sarah only lived to be 15 long story short the whole point of sarah she was that captured and lived her life back in like the 80s she was one of the first bears they captured when they first started doing research in the 80s mm-hmm. and basically all her progeny to this day are exceptionally long lived mm-hmm. as compared to other bears so they have this massive research project that's now been going on for 40 years Mm -hmm. so they've just have all this incredible data his whole his what he believes is that uh, the nurture quote unquote like like what a female bear teaches her cubs about how to be a bear not what's necessarily innate in them that Mm -hmm. just is in their dna is really important because basically generations later sarah's progeny are living like twice as long as the average bear in maine and he you know i'd have to read the story again to get the exact quotes from randy but sarah was she she was not killed over a bait i don't think because that's what they were trying to determine is how are you know how are these bears surviving our baited bear hunts mm-hmm. and basically he believed that she had a negative interaction at a bait site when she was young and that spooked her so bad that she avoided bait sites her whole life mm-hmm. and she taught her young to do that because that's what they're finding cuz like most of the mortality yeah. in Maine is from hunting over bait which i mean it's a management tool that's a positive thing like that's how the bears are being harvested that's how they're managing their population and uh to this day in 2020 sarah's progeny are not getting killed over bait that's really cool yeah i was and that's that's getting back to what i was saying about you know our our younger the younger females and um and and their ability to raise up and teach their cubs what they need to know to be bears. Right. I mean, there's, there's, and you see, um, and I don't think it's always age related, but certainly you would think that younger ones would have a little bit harder go of it than, than the older females do. But, um, 
But yeah, I mean, I would agree. I mean, that's that's uh, why it's so females and bear populations. Females are so important. We're a little biased. If you're a bear biologist, you're a little biased. You yep. like you like the girls, and that's yep. because they are the sole factor that is allowing a population to be stable and or growing. So it's yeah. that those females and their recruitment of other females, right? Right. And and. So they're not only important in terms of having the cubs, but they're important in making sure that those cubs actually survive right. to become productive members of bear society. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, that's pretty incredible. It really is. Um, Sarah, is there anything that we've not talked about that you would like to? Oh, well, I would like to. Yeah, I, I think the thing that that I'd like people to walk away from with this. I mean, we could talk bears all day long and I do. Um, But as far as Oklahoma management is concerned, you know, we, we touched on the fact that the Ozark and the Wachita populations are distinct and separate populations. And we touched on the fact that the, um, the landscape in those regions are so, is so different. And that's just an important thing for people to think about, you know, when you're, if you're a sportsman and you're interested in hunting or you're hearing about um, the management plans here in Oklahoma for bears, just to consider that, yeah, just because we have 11 or 1200 bears in the Wachita's doesn't mean that you can manage the Ozark population the same way. So, so the ODWC, and this is a big reason why they work so closely with us at OSU, um, you know, they're working hard to manage these populations separately because of their different needs. So you're you're saying don't get upset if you can't hunt bear in the Ozark right. portions so, of Right. So so we can't hunt there just yet because everything that we've shown from our den visits and our captures show that there are not enough females and there's not enough yeah. female recruitment in that population for it to be a stable population in and of itself. So mm, if we weren't sense. still getting bears coming over expanding from Arkansas then we wouldn't be seeing much of a growth in that area. Um, And so, so we've got to consider that. And we have every interest in, um, you know, the, the story down in the Wachita's, it's just such a conservation um, success story, right. You know, to be able to have this population that we can hunt now and give people the opportunity. And it's still a growing population, even with that, yeah, that that's happening. what I, I wanted um, to ask you about that. That's it's just super exciting to know that we can give people the opportunity to hunt the species and still know that we're not negatively impacting that population, right? right? And that's what we would like to see in the Northeast in that Ozark region. Uh, we just have to give it time. And but then the management is still going to have to be different up there just because there are a lot more people and because of that fragmented habitat. So it will just be a totally different management scheme than what we're seeing down here yeah. in the Wachita's. And, and down here, we can bait bear on private land now. And like it used to be just four counties, but now they've expanded that. Right. To, I don't know, 10 or 12 counties. Yeah, they, they went to highway markers instead of mm. county lines right, just right. for this southeast region. Um, makes more sense because you don't know when you cross a, a county line when you're in the woods necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, even with that expanded area, um, quite frankly, those those the expanded area that's now included in the hunting season. Um, Some you of know, it's those not going to be that productive. There's not that many bears out there just yeah. yet. I mean, there will be at some point. 
um, and what will be out there are males most likely. And yeah. so for hunting purposes, that's fantastic. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah. Um, you can, you can have the So the population is growing West. It's moving West mm-hmm. and moving and South. And that's part of what we're looking at now. Courtney daughter, which is, is going to be looking at, we've moved out of the core area for trapping. And now we're looking into some of those more expanded areas to see kind of how that density changes as we move West. Um, or the population size or density is moving, yeah. and changing, and then and then where we kind of see that the females stop and it's just males, you know, yeah, trying yeah, to get yeah, a feel yeah. for what ah, what we're looking at right now. Um, so they think there's only about 1,100 bears in Oklahoma. In in the Wachita population, the most recent um, from our research yeah. is, is about 1,200, 11 or 1,200 1, bears. Okay, mm-hmm. and it's a relatively small area, but mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I know you were asking about density in some of the other podcasts you've done, and that that is. And nobody ever gives me a good answer, Sarah. <laughs> I got one for you. <laughs> Drum roll. Okay, so so from our our early studies and and like the 2014 2015 work, um, it looks like there's about I think they reported about 11.4 bears per about 38 square miles. Okay. Now, so I heard you throwing out the, is there one bear per one square mile kind of thing that shows that that's even less. Um, and, and that's really kind of for the core area. Okay. Um, so that's where they're thick. That's where they're There's the thickest, right? Less is what than we're a saying. bear per square mile. But now we have to take that with a grain of salt. I mean, we're obviously, we're having to say this is within our study area. So based on home ranges of the females and based on where our trap lines are. So it's within that area. And it's just with like one snapshot in time. Right. Right. So, so. Because at any given time, what's so deceiving about that is you might go on that mountain right there and there may be three or four bears there at one time i mean you might right. see them you've you might got get one pictures big, of if them if you've got one big clear cut and it's loaded down with blackberries or pokeberries depending on the time of year then they're probably going to be more than one bear out in that big clear cut because that's where the food but source statistically is. for the amount of land not even one bear per square mile right yeah okay you did a great job with that. <laughs> well, you're the very first. Well, Morgan Fander did a great job. Okay. <laughs> That's what these no, graduate students put here, together. <laughs> I'm going to throw her right on the bus. She would have tried to complicate it. <laughs> no, but they they're the ones out there doing the hard work and and giving us all this good information. So yeah, well, that's pretty cool. That's really cool. Um, Colby, any any thoughts? Any questions? Yeah. Oh, what's some of the other research projects that you guys have done? Or, or what? Or what's going on now? Maybe? Or what's going on now? Uh, what was the research project that you know was the biggest surprise, or you know? Um, the new thing that's happening right now. Well, I, I already mentioned that Will Childress is starting to. We just started collaring um, yearlings to track for that, and mm-hmm. so we're we're new into that project and don't have any data on that yet. Mm. Um, not all put together yet. But that's that's very exciting. We're excited to see um, it, that information should tell us how they're going to expand into this new region in the Ozarks, right? Since we're mm-hmm. right at the beginning of that recolonization, it'll give us a better feel by tracking both the males and the females to see how they move into the 
the available habitat that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's really exciting. Something that we're not very happy about, but that we're looking into is the cases of sarcoptic mange in that Ozark region. Mm. It's happening in Arkansas. We've worked with Myron Means um, as well. We kind of are trying to collaborate and everybody's scratching our heads trying to figure this out. But um, so part of the new research also um, is showing what we're doing is we're pulling um, blood samples and skin scrapings from every bear we have our hands on, both in the Ozarks and the Wachita's. We're mm-hmm. not seeing it in the Wachita's yet. Fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen down here. Um, so we're pulling those samples in the hopes of maybe seeing what the underlying conditions are and why mm-hmm. why certain mm-hmm. bears in that region are get, are susceptible. You know, we had a guy right in here. asking about, you may not have seen it, asking he asked me to ask somebody about mange and bears in Arkansas, and I forgot about it. But you just it's, answered it. It's, Sar- it's, what did you call it? Sarcoptic. It's sarcoptic mange, and it's it just it's makes them look bald, like, like what I've coyotes, like a coyotes mm-hmm. get th- that kind of yeah. thing. That's the ones that look horrible. I mean, and it can kill them. It it can, uh, and we've actually we believe that we've had. Um, this is anecdotally, but we believe that we've lost a bear to females to it because they had it so bad going into den season that they didn't, it really takes its toll. They can't put pack on the pounds like they need to. They lose all of their hair. They're itchy. They, I mean, they don't end up staying in their dens. We've had several that we've tracked. They don't stay in their dens um, because they're hungry one and because it's got to be uncomfortable Um, now. So it can kill them, but then there are also cases where they seem to have recovered. They come out of it. Um, you know, last, and, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that this is, you know, there's, there's a lot of research going into hmm. mange with bears right now. Does it happen in other places? It is. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. So Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania was the closest to us until we got it here. Um, but it's happening all across the country. Um, there, there's a lab in, at University of Georgia that's, that's actually kind of, the center for all of the research for the mites and trying to figure this out. And they've even found that, you know, conventional wisdom was that the mites didn't last very long off of a host, like a couple of hours would be a long time. But what they found recently is that those mites in the right conditions can actually live up to two weeks off of a host. Okay. And, and if that's the case, then, I mean, you can only imagine if we're congregating bears at, wildlife feeders, um, right. you know, things like that, then, then there's the potential for spread. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are just a million questions that we have yeah. about this and hopefully, hopefully we can look into this even more, yeah. but at least right now, um, Will Childress has spearheaded and we've, we've started taking these samples and hopefully we can see if there are any underlying differences between the populations. Right. Or maybe it's just they're there and it's just not here yet. I had a guy last fall, I'd almost forgotten about this, um, send me, well, a friend of mine sent me a picture and it was his friend that had this picture of a hairless, it was, it was a crazy sight. If you would have shown this picture to 10 people and said, what animal is this? You know, probably eight people would have got it wrong, but a absolutely hairless bear emaciated i mean you could see its ribs and this guy was deer hunting feeding deer uh up in the ozarks in madison county and uh this bear was just like living on his corn pile Mm -hmm. for his deer 
and like wouldn't leave. I mean, the, the bear was about to die. It needed it. And, and he, this guy messages to me and said, hey, send this to Myron Means. And so I messaged it to Myron mm-hmm. and uh, Myron asked for the guy's phone number. And, and I, I don't know what they were going to try to do with it. If they were mm. going to try to, I don't know what they did with it. I lost touch after that, but it was there crazy. Have been, there have been cases where they've, they've had, they've dispatched just, just for humane reasons. I mm-hmm. mean, when they get that bad, it's, yeah. it's hard to see them, see them suffer like that. Um, there are, um, like, I think it's in Wisconsin where they actually, they kind of have a, oh, a scale for how bad the individual is. And if it, if it meets a certain requirement, they're actually treating with ivermectin. Hmm. And, um, anecdotally, they've had experience with that actually working. We have treated a few bears. Um, we have treated a few bears that we've captured in our, our study and it has worked. Oh, really? Um, One bear did did get it again the next summer. Um, but one shot of ivermectin. Did the trick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, you know, so so that's another thing that we're looking into now. We've started putting some collars on some of those mangy individuals without treatment to see can they recover from it without treatment. Yeah. Or is, is treatment something that we need to look into from a long-term management standpoint. Would there um, be any danger in eating a bear that had some bit of mange? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, it would just be a, once like you, a cause it's all, it's all in the skin. It's not inside them. It's just, so it's, it, they actually burrow and live in their skin. That's right. why they get that. It's real, um, crusty and thick skin because mm-hmm. those, yeah. those mites are actually living inside the skin. So once you skinned yeah. out that bear, everything underneath, I would imagine should be just yeah. fine. It just might be, um, compromised in terms of health. I mean, not in a right like disease. Well, they're going to be thin. It might they're, be thinner, or mm-hmm. leaner, or something. For sure. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because somebody had asked us about that, and I, I didn't. Know. I'd seen it. I've, I've seen, uh, I've seen a bear with mange up in the wilderness of Saskatchewan one time, but that's the only bear in the wild, wild that I've ever seen that had it. So, I mean, I guess it's common in a sense, but just becoming more common, mm-hmm. sounds like. And and a word to the wise, um, humans can get bear mange. I know from experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we worked, we worked, um, one of the females that we worked up, I actually ended up getting mites on my stomach. No way. And um, the, I mean, the, the good news, well, at least what I read was that they technically, they could bite me, but it would basically, it's like a chigger bite. Hmm. They're not living on me. You know, mm-hmm. they couldn't complete well, I mean, a life cycle or You're anything. A but mammal with. <laughs> the- well, so I don't know. And again, this is all part of what they're learning about the mites. And, and they used to think that it was species specific. And now I think they found that it's not necessarily. So maybe coyotes can get the same hmm. that the bears do hmm. and that kind of thing. Um those particular mites didn't get a chance to live on me because I might have dipped myself with dog dip <laughs> before driving wow. home. Good call. Wow. Because I, I didn't want to take I don't, any chances. I don't want this reputation to follow you, but you're the one that brought it up. You are the only person I know that's had mange. It's all in the name that of the a, job. That is a badge of honor that's in our book. I am not shy about it. <laughs> wow. And I'd do it wow. again if I had to. Yeah, you know, that I actually was thinking that and I didn't say it. I mean, just like, yeah, can you get it? Yeah. 
Yeah, so, so now we actually, um, so we carry in our kits, we've got Tyvek suits, and um, and then to kill the mites on our gear, um, we found that one of the things that the UGA folks found was that if you freezed below a certain level for a certain amount of time, you'd kill the, all of it, them. The freeze and kills so the mites. every bit of our gear, if we actually handle any any mangy bears or even suspect that we're dealing with one that might have mange, then we have all of these protocols so that we're not sharing with other bears. Oh, mm-hmm. So they carry a couple of kits with them just to be sure that in case you have more than one capture a day, you're not having to use the same way net on both bears, oh, things like that. Yeah, and spread because it. we certainly don't want to take any chances of us being the cause of the spread either. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's changed the face of our research just a little bit, not at not only in the fact that we're trying to look into this issue, but also how we function so that we don't contribute to the spread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 As long as our bears don't start getting COVID, we'll be good. <laughs> well, I will tell you this, that we are, we're already making, making plans and discussions at this point. You know, we generally, during our den work, we usually have um, groups of folks that go out with us, landowners, different things like that. And because we don't know if the bears can get it from us or not we're mm-hmm. already starting to think about how to manage our den season this yeah. next year mm-hmm. there's a um, lot of people ha- a lot of these are kind of so like people it's are an going educational on situation so yeah. we have a lot of people and and we obviously already know that we are not going to be able to or willing to handle it the same way that we've done in the past yeah um Maybe even, even as even as cautious as we always are that we're having as little impact as possible on the bears to begin with, um, with, with COVID, we're definitely concerned and have started, started some plans to, to see how we're going to manage that yeah, that's for this next year. That's and in fact, it, we even, I mean, even over the summer, we had to live and work under different conditions because of the university regulations. And, we we took extra precautions even with the bears we were dealing with if we had any scares or anything that if we thought mm. somebody had potentially been exposed then we tried to keep them you know wow. with masks and gloves and things too so mm-hmm. it's it, it goes beyond just the human world yeah it's mm-hmm. kind of weird to think that we're trying to protect these animals from covid i heard a story of a guy that i know that had a bat like like nesting in his like porch hmm. And he he knew the wildlife guy. I'm not even going to name the state. Mm. And he texted a picture to his wildlife buddy about this bat and what he should do. This is right in the heat of COVID. And the guy was like, just make sure you don't. I mean, essentially, he said, (laughs) don't give the bat your COVID. (laughs) 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 Really, he said, he was like, don't get. He wasn't worried about the bat having COVID. Mm -hmm. Give it to him. He was like. If you have COVID, we don't want the bat to get COVID. <laughs> right. And then sp- anyway, that is totally rabbit trail. <laughs> well, Sarah, truly a pleasure talking with you. For yeah. real. I respect what you're doing and just appreciate appreciate your knowledge and expertise over here in Oklahoma. And I mean, no doubt you've handled more bears than anybody over here, I would say. From my I don't have a Oklahoma bear handling meter, <laughs> but if I did, I think I think you would probably have Jeff Jeff Ford might rival me on okay, that one. Well, he, Jeff, he might, but you yeah. Did. You're right. You're right. But Jeff I've been is... definitely extremely fortunate to to get to do what I've done here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's yeah, for yeah. sure. And I appreciate you having me. This is I could talk bears all day long. So. Well, and every time I do a podcast with somebody that's really an expert, I always 
as soon as we shut this thing off, I'm going to go, Dad, Gim, why didn't I <laughs> ask her about that? Uh, so, nah, we'll maybe we'll, we'll find a reason to do this again. Do so, a follow up. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, really appreciate it. But keep the wild places wild because that's where the bears live. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.